Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, one returning guest, one new one. I have uh, Cameron Mervold. He's a postdoctoral fellow in the Sabeti Lab at uh, the Barnard Institute of MIT and Harvard. I also have Sherry Ackerman. Uh, she's the co-founder and CEO at Concerto Biosciences. And we're going to talk about um, a new diagnostic method um, that involves CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas13 instead, uh, to fight epidemics. So both of you, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, if you don't mind, uh, talk about the background of your work. What's it about? Uh, what's the methodology? Yeah, definitely. Sherry, do you want to start? Yeah, I can start. Um, basically, the goal behind this project um, was to develop a way to do low-cost, highly scalable, and multiplex diagnostics. So we want to be able to ask the question, um, what is making a person sick? And be able to test for all of the possible things that they might be infected with at the same time. Um, and we, uh, in order to do that, um, we basically used CRISPR-Cas13 diagnostics inside of a microwell array um, that allows us to construct all of these possible different detection reactions using Cas13 um, at the same time. And happy to talk more about the details behind that or the motivation, uh, whatever's helpful. But when you say to ascertain when someone's sick, what does that mean? They have a viral infection, a bacterial infection, yeah. they just don't the feel well that, for some reason? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the work that we were particularly focused on was looking at viral infections, and that's largely because of the focus of the Sabeti lab. Uh, Cameron, do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So the Sabeti lab is really you know, broadly interested in uh, understanding uh, viral infection in the lab. You know, came into this really through uh, next generation sequencing and, and um, has led lots of efforts to sequence different viral infections, uh, whether that's during the Ebola outbreak, uh, during Zika, or more recently. That's sort of, you know, where, where we come at this from. Um, we've more recently been using that sequence information to try and inform the design of better diagnostics. That sequence information is really powerful. It lets you know uh, exactly what is causing a particular infection. Um, and many times, you know, different viruses that are related can cause really similar symptoms. And so it's hard to know, you know, do I actually have COVID or do I just have some other respiratory virus that is causing, you know, similar symptoms. And the sooner you can know that information, the better, um, especially if it's, you know, in a situation like COVID where you've got a pandemic, but even um, more broadly, just sort of knowing what is making people sick, you know, that's really what uh, Carmen, the technology is. So what, okay. So right now, to test whether someone's sick with COVID, is it being done just with a, a nasal swab and PCR? Um, and yeah. if so, you know, how is this, this going to help ascertain whether they actually, uh, you know, is this a completely different a replacement method for a nasal swab, or how does this uh, fit in? Yeah, so the sampling is similar, and, 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 you know, the standard sampling approaches now are different types of, of nasal swabs um, to, to figure out, you know, 
uh, what is in that. And people are typically using PCR-based approaches um, to, to figure out what's in the sample, but those are really limited. You typically are only testing for one or two different things at a time. Um, and that's a challenge because there are, you know, um, many different respiratory viruses that could potentially be infected. And so that's something that, you know, really motivated us to develop Carmen was to come up with a way to test samples for lots of different viruses at a time, um, but also to do that um, in a way that would make it easy to test lots of different samples in them too. It's really a problem of scale. Um, this sort of one-at-a-time approach that we're taking at the moment uh, is really limiting. And I think we've seen that, you know, over the past few months as it's been really hard to increase the number of tests, you know, over time, even though it's such a, a crucial problem and so, so much effort has been put into it. Um, new technologies like this, we think in the future will, will make it easier to scale up testing to perform a large. But again, how does this test work versus the current uh, nasal swab and why, you know, why is it better? What are some details about it? Yeah, Sherry, do you want to take this one? Sure. So it does start with a nasal swab. So the way that you get a sample from a person um, would be some bodily fluid. Um, it's the overall method is pretty agnostic, but if you're going to use it for COVID-19, you obviously want to be sampling from a body fluid that would be carrying COVID-19. So a nasal swab would be a very common way of doing that. Um, after taking that swab, um, there's a little bit of sample prep that has to happen, and this is the same sort of sample prep that you would do to, um, in order to conduct a downstream PCR detection. Um, the thing that's different about our method is that at that um, detection step, when you're actually going to ask, okay, we collected the sample, we processed the sample, but what's in the sample? Uh, we're going to do two things that are very different from what is currently done now. So the first is that the detection is conducted in a volume that is very, very small. It's a thousand times smaller um, than the volume that's typically used for these reactions. And that allows us to conduct many tests on the, the same um, amount of sample that you would collect from someone. Um, and it also allows you to use a lot less of the detection reagent, a lot less of the CRISPR-Cas13 reagents, um, making, the making the tests much less, ex less expensive. Um, and then the second thing that we're going to do that's really different from what's done now is instead of um, using up energy trying to um, first test for COVID and then test for flu and then test for RSV, we're actually going to use randomness and um, we call it entropy in science um, to our advantage. And um, we're going to allow all of these reactions to um, set themselves up on their own. So we put all of the different patient samples into the device. We put all of the different detection reagents into the device. Um, and those detection reagents and um, samples can self-organize in a way that as long as we do enough statistical sampling, we get a really robust result for all of the possible tests that could be set up um, in the device. And so in this way, we can conduct all of these different reactions at the same time instead of um, having to do them one at a time. Well, if you're going to have multiple reagents, I mean, is there cross-reactivity between the reagents? Yeah, that's a really... You know, less, less of a sample than before, I mean... How is there enough of a sample to get a statistically significant, you know, preference or predilection for one or the other? Yep. Yeah. So there are two. So you asked about is cross-reactivity an issue? 
And then you're asking, is the result robust? Like, how are we sure that we're getting the right answer? And those are really important questions to be asking in diagnostics. Um, the first, wow, I'm like very lost right now. Okay, what was the first question you asked me? I just repeated it to you. Yeah, no, no problem. The first question is, is you going to have multiple reagents? Oh, right, cross-contamination. And right, then robustness, yeah. Right. Yeah, so we prevent cross-contamination um, by actually making these reactions happen inside of nanoliter droplets. These droplets are um, like an emulsion. So it, it's kind of like salad dressing, like the way that um, you have water inside of an oil. And each of those droplets is physically isolated from all of the other droplets. And so if there is um, a detection reagent in one droplet that um, is you know, trying to detect COVID, then it can't actually communicate with the detection reagent that might be in the droplet next to it that's for influenza. And so by separating these different reactions out into different droplets, we actually cut down on the amount of cross-reactivity we see in this, in this assay um, compared to other things that we do in bulk format by a lot. And that's a really strong advantage of this technology. And then um, the second thing you asked about was robustness. And that's really, really important. Um, the way that we're able to accomplish robust results is by um, doing the, um, the statistical sampling many, many times. So every test on the, the chip is conducted at least 10 or if not 15 or 30 times, but at least um, 10 times. And this allows us to make sure that you know, when we say that something's positive, it's not that it just tested positive once. Um, it's that it tested positive like many, many times across the chip. Um, and so that statistical sampling is really important. So it sounds like you have an array with multiple reagents. You know, like let's say it's an array of a thousand, and you have uh, you know ten different reagents. Each one may have a hundred nanocells in the array. Let's say, and then you. You split up your sample into tiny fractions. It goes into all the wells. Mm -hmm. That way you're able to get robustness and uh, separate the reagents and use very small amounts from the same sample. Yeah, that's about right. Um, it's that, so the number of wells per chip depends on the size of the chip. Um, they're the ones that we published most recently is the chip is about the size of a smartphone and it has 170,000 wells on it. And it can conduct 4,500 tests at a time. And the reason that that 4,500 number is so much lower than the 177,000 number um, is because we want all of that statistical representation. And because we're using randomness to set things up, um, you know, a lot of the things that are going to get set up are not going to be useful. Um, and then we want to make sure that the things that are useful are replicated many times. Why do you call it randomness? If you're just testing for many different things, what, what does randomness have to do with it? I would, I would think that uh, it just allows you to test for more things at once. Um, yeah. So the randomness is in how everything gets set up. So we're putting in a set of patient samples and each of those patient samples is in a set of droplets. Each of the set of droplets is color-coded. So patient sample might be red. Uh, or patient sample one might be red. Patient sample two might be blue. Um, and then we put in a set of detection reagents. And each detection reagent goes into dro droplets. 
and each of those detection reagents is also color-coded. So the detection reagent for COVID might be green, and the detection reagent for flu might be black. Um, and then we're mixing all of those droplets in one tube. So now we have all the patient samples and all the detection reagents in a single tube, and they're not interacting yet because those droplets are all separated from each other. Like the patient samples are inside of specific droplets that carry a color, and the color tells us which patient sample is in which droplet or which detection reagent is in which droplet. So now what we wanna do is take random samplings of pairs of droplets. So to do that, we flow the, the droplet pool over a microwell array that contains these hundreds of thousands of microwells. And each microwell is the right shape to catch exactly two droplets. So when I say random, I mean that we're not, you know, forcing any particular droplet to go into any particular well. Um, it is just a random sampling from the pool. And so 25% of the time, you're actually going to get a sample droplet with a sample droplet. And that's just lost. Uh, like that well is not useful because there's no detection reagent or yeah, there's no detection reagent in that well. And then 25% of the time we're going to get a detection reagent plus the detection reagent. Um, and that well is just not useful. So what we're looking for is the 50% of the time that we're going to get a sample plus a detection reagent. And then um, we actually cause, once all of the wells are loaded, then um, we take a picture of those colors to figure out where all of the different samples and different detection reagents are in the chip. Um, and then we apply an electrical pulse that merges the droplets that are only inside of a specific well. And that's what starts the reaction. And then we can monitor those reactions over time. So if we see a specific well that lights up, um, that turns fluorescent, then we can go back and ask which patient sample and which detection reagent was in that well, and therefore, what is that patient um, testing positive for? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, is it too much to use uh, two different reagent feedstocks in case you have a bad reagent? Um, what, I'm not sure what you mean. You know, for a given reagent, reagent mm -hmm. X, mm -hmm. um, you know, what if you have a bad reagent feedstock? What if something's wrong with it or it's corrupted? I mean, could you, will you lose the, I mean, could this test be scaled up to the point where it's so robust that you could have, again, multiple reagent feedstocks? So you, you eliminate sure. even that from the equation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, um, if you think of this as a matrix where you have like one dimension that is the number of detection reagents and you have another dimension that is the number of patient samples then the more detection, more different types of detection reagents that you put into the device, the fewer patient samples you're going to be able to run at a time um, because like your matrix is like more rectangular, I guess. Um, so I, I think the only trade-off with, you know, increasing robustness by say you, you want to have two or three different COVID tests on the chip. Yeah, you can definitely do that. And that will, um, you know, increase the performance of the overall assay because you could ask, like, do all of them test positive or do two out of the three test positive? Um, but then you're not going to be able to run as many patient samples because you're trying to run more tests. And there's like a total number of tests that you can run overall. Does that make sense? Yeah. What happens if, uh, yeah, right, for a given problem, you know, uh, let's say COVID, 
uh, you have 10 wells possible that it could test for it, and only two show positive versus six. You know, <laughs> how do you know what's, what do you do in those situations where it's ambiguous? Yeah, um, there it's really important to have strong uh, prior data. So when you go through FDA approval and like EUA and all of this, the clear regulations, you have to define at that stage what you're going to consider to be a positive and what you're going to consider to be a negative. And that really has to do with, you know, the performance of the assay overall, the specificity and sensitivity requirements that you're trying to meet. Um, so it would really depend on, you know, that process that you went through with the FDA to say, this is what counts as positive, this is what counts as negative. And that's, you know, one of the really important roles of regulation in diagnostics is making sure that, you know, everybody sets those thresholds in a way that's honest and robust. Okay. Well, that's innovative in itself, the way you're doing it. But what about the, um, the testing itself? Uh, the bio you mentioned using what's called CRISPR-Cas13. Like, I don't, I don't know much about it. I, you know, a lot of people have heard of CRISPR-Cas9, but what is CRISPR-Cas13? You know, how is the test itself unique and different? Yeah, definitely. I can perhaps speak to that a little bit. So you can think of Cas13 as really being a lot like the RNA targeting equivalent of Cas9. So Cas9 is this amazing programmable nuclease that you can target to a specific location on a piece of double-stranded DNA using a guide RNA sequence. Allows it to bind to that particular site and then cut it. And, and people have used Cas9 to do all sorts of things in the genome editing space, but also you know, more broadly. Um, Cas13 is analogous to Cas9 in a lot of ways, except that it targets RNA rather. Um, and that's what we take advantage of uh, in, in these diagnostic contexts, is that once Cas13 binds to its target, it becomes activated and it starts cutting RNA, um, and it becomes a very active nucleus. And that's really powerful when you combine that with a separate reporter RNA molecule that fluoresces when on. And so what you're basically doing is you're turning that one specific binding event, um, that initial event where the guide RNA binds to the target, into many, many subsequent um, And that basically is a way of amplifying the signal and giving you all of this additional sensitivity and specificity relative to other nucleic acids. And that's why we're so excited about in the context of Carmen, really the robustness of the underlying Cas13 detection reaction helped us a lot as we were trying to scale the reaction volumes down by a factor of about 10,000. Um, and that's not an, always an easy thing to do. There are many other reactions where you scale them down like that. It becomes difficult to get a reliable readout. Um, but this reaction is really robust to that. And I think that really helped us as we were developing the Okay, so this is like a CRISPR-Cas9 for RNA. So since COVID-19, you know, it's an RNA virus, it's, it seems appropriate for this. It's like going to work. Yeah, that's right. Although I do want to clarify that it's not, it's not directly cutting the viral genome. There is an amplification step that happens, um, and that's necessary for us to achieve the clinically relevant sensitivity. And so what we typically do uh, is extract nucleic acids from a sample, reverse transcribe that viral RNA into complementary DNA, amplify it uh, using multiplexed PCR, which is a standard, you know, nucleic acid extraction approach. Um, but that uh, amplification step is not specific. So there are primers in that amplification reaction for many of the different viruses that we might want to detect. And then we use specific CRISPR RNA um, in order to detect the individual virus that are present that we are trying to. How come you can't just, um, you know, try to directly sequence the RNA from, from various viruses? I mean, I guess you'd have to crack open or dissolve the capsids to get at it. But uh, is there another reason or another step why you can't do that? 
Uh, you certainly can, and there have been lots of efforts to do that around the world. I think uh, at last count, there were well over 10,000 uh, know, coronavirus genomes that have been sequenced from the pandemic. And, and sequencing is really a great way to learn all of the information that's uh, present within a virus. The challenge is just that um, it's, it's a relatively expensive method, so it takes about one or two hundred dollars to sequence a sample, um, and it takes a while to get that result, typically a day or two. Um, and so if you want to perform testing at the scale that's needed, and we're talking, you know, millions of tests per day in the United States, you know, tens of millions to hundreds of millions if you're talking around the world, um, that's just not feasible to do using sequence. It would cost too much money and it would take... Oh, what's, what's the speed of this if you have a, you know, naive sample? What's the, the whole time frame to, to get this whole testing process? Yeah, Sherry, do you want to talk a bit more about the workflow? Sure. Um, so as we mentioned, I think a little bit earlier, um, following sampling, there is an extraction and amplification step, this multiplex PCR that's pretty standard. Um, all of that together typically takes about two hours. And then downstream of that is the Carmen detection. And Carmen detection, as it's published in you know, the paper we put out a couple months ago, takes on the order of about five hours, depending on how long the incubation step is. So it's about two hours to set up and then three hours to let the incubation for the detection happen. Um, and we actually recognize that um, that's a little bit long if you're looking to um, you know, do this in really high throughput. And so one of the active areas of research in the lab right now is decreasing that time, both the time for setup um, and the time for the, the incubation. That's the, so the overall time frame right now is around seven hours, but we definitely um, are working on and have ways already of making it shorter time. Yeah, to be um, really commercially viable, how fast does it need to be? And, you know, theoretically, what are you guys thinking? How, how fast could it be? Depends on your use case. So for point of care, we typically say that uh, shorter is better almost always because if you have a person who's sitting in your doctor's office wanting an answer or if you have someone um, out in the field who wants an answer usually you want it to be minutes. Um, I think the use cases that we see for this particular technology again um, where the the sweet spot for the technology really is is in scale like scalable um, diagnostics. And so it matters that there are a lot of patients that need to be tested um, all at the same time. So this is less about, you know, you in your home um, being, you know, testing yourself for something or one person going to the doctor. It's more um, about transforming these situations where we have hundreds of people, thousands of people, millions of people that all need to be tested. Um, and so we would imagine in this case, a use case would be, you know, at a clinical laboratory facility um, or in these sort of, yeah, bulk testing situations. Um, and so, you know, in, in that case, um, yeah, I, I think it's really about like the number of samples that you're trying to put through the system at the same time. Well, yeah, hopefully there will be a trade-off of, you know, you have a hundred people sitting at a border or at an airport and they don't want to let them go until they get the results of their COVID test, for instance. Yeah. Uh, you don't want them sitting there for seven hours. And you want to be able yeah. to test people quickly and uh, you know, get them through something. If, if that, unfortunately, is what ends up happening. Right. 
Yeah, and I think you you asked about what the theoretical speed would be. Um, I mean, we're aiming right now for around three hours because that allows us to do that extraction, amplification, and detection. Um, and you know, if, if we can get that even shorter, then that's where we're definitely where we're going. And there may be a speed to do it in a qualified lab versus a speed to do it out in the field. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know. I can't see that doing it out in the field would be uh, nearly as good or as effective or you know, as sensitive or specific or fast as what you could do in a lab. But I guess you can you'll do your best and then adapt to the field. It's really all about the engineering. Um, I think there's there's definitely a world in which you could get field tests that are extremely sensitive and specific. Um, but yeah. Yeah, that's right. And just to chime in here, you know, I think that you know we usually think about those more deployable assays as being simpler. You know, probably detecting one or a small number of viruses. But if the technology is good enough, you know, certainly we could be more ambitious. And you know, I think it's a matter of time before we're able to certainly. There's been a lot of progress, you know, even just the last couple of years. Well, that's great. So what's what's next for this technology? Uh, what's left in the path to scale it and deploy it for you guys? You know, what does the next year look like, for instance? Cameron, you want to speak to that a little bit? Sure, definitely. Yeah, I think we're really excited to see where we can go with the technology. And then I think that means, you know, making panels for different viruses, including things like respiratory viruses. I think that means doing testing with patient samples and you know, ultimately, we'd like to see this technology get out there in the world. That's why we developed it. Um, and so really, it's about, you know, charting that. And it's something, you know, I think we're really excited to be a part of. It's really uh, wonderful to be able to technology like this uh, isn't just, you know, useful in a, in a research setting like we've been using it so far, but actually has potential uh, to make a difference, you know. And so I think that's definitely what, you know, you know focusing to next year, as well as continuing to improve the technology itself, because, there's always additional features that you might want or ways to make it, you know, even better than it is now. I think that's true for any technology, but especially um, in this particular space where, you know, a lot of the components of this technology only came together pretty recently. You know, if you look at the two core underlying parts of the technology, the CAS-13 detection and the underlying, you know, microwell array uh, emulsion technologies, those really only, it was only possible to, to be using those as of a few years ago. And, you know, this is the first time they've really been combined. So, you know, I think similarly, there's a lot, as a result of that, in many ways, there's a lot of potential to really, um, you know, see where we can. You asked about um, commercialization. And so the company that we just co-founded, Concerto Biosciences, um, was co-founded because we want this micro well emulsion technology to have impact in the world. Um, And so there are a lot of different ways that we can imagine that happening, whether that's through diagnostics or something else. Um, But basically what the company is doing is creating commercially viable versions of that technology. And one of the areas that we're exploring for applications um, is in diagnostics. Well, very good. Um, What's the best way for people to keep tabs on what you do? Learn about Concerto, learn about this effort. Uh, so we're currently at the Harvard uh, Life Lab as a student team, and so I think if you can find us, um, you know, online there, we have a LinkedIn. Um, yeah, I'm more than happy to uh, talk with anybody who's interested in what we're up to. Okay. Well, very good, Cameron. Uh, both of you, thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. And uh, sharing, Cameron, thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so Great much. Great to be here. For talking with us. Thank you. If you like this podcast, 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.